afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet. And yeah, um, and I'm running the board today, so anything could happen. <laughs> our our guest is Martin J. Smith. He's a veteran journalist, former senior editor of the Los Angeles Times Magazine. He's the author of five crime novels, four previous nonfiction books, and he's won more than 50 newspaper and magazine writing awards. So we're excited to have him here. Uh, Martin, are you there? Good. Let me just turn that up a little bit and see if that helps a little bit. Um, the new book that you've written is called Going to Trinidad, A Doctor, A Colorado Town, and Stories from an Unlikely Gender Crossroads. Um, I saw the book. It came uh, to my office, and I said, going to Trinidad, I know that phrase, and I haven't heard it in years. Tell us about what the phrase means. You know, the title, Going to Trinidad, comes from what became a euphemism uh, in the worldwide transgender community um, for having surgery uh, during transition. Um, it goes back, there was a, in, in a small town, remote town in southern Colorado, a former mining town named Trinidad, there was a doctor, Stanley Biber, who in 1969 began specializing in uh, gender confirmation surgeries. And um, he, be he began very quietly, sort of accepting patients and doing the surgeries, and um, his reputation built. His, he began doing these surgeries at a time when um, uh, many of the university clinics, gender clinics, were starting to shut down or cut back on their services, to the point where, at some point, Stanley Biber in Trinidad, Colorado, became pretty much the only game in town. And the idea of going to Trinidad to see Stanley Biber became a euphemism for having the surgery. If somebody said, I'm going to Trinidad next year, you, you knew what that meant. Now, Trinidad is like in the middle of nowhere. It's on I-25, if you know uh, Denver at all. So it's south of Denver, actually, almost near the New Mexico border, halfway between Boulder, and, not Boulder, Colorado Springs and um, uh, Santa Fe. Correct. Why I've, did, I've been there. You've been there, Patty? Yeah, it's just barely over the line from New Mexico in yeah. Colorado. Yeah. yeah. Why did he choose that town to do this? Um, was, was it very accepting there, or what was it about Trinidad? Well, so, like so much of history, it happened by accident. Um, he, was, uh, he was a MASH surgeon in Korea during the Korean War, <clears throat> and when he came back from his service there, um, he was stationed at a fort very near Trinidad um, in Colorado Springs, and he had heard that the United Mine Workers, uh, this was a very intense coal mining area at the time in the 1940s and 50s, um, he had heard that they were opening a medical clinic down there for the, the mine workers, and they'd asked him to come down and be the surgeon. Um, and, and so he moved to Trinidad um, with the idea that he would be there for about a year and get this clinic open and then move on. But two things happened. One is he found sort of a, a place for an outlet for his childhood fantasies of being a rancher. This was ranching country, um, and he'd always wanted to be a cowboy. And he got there, and he realized he kind of liked it there. The other thing that happened was that he was the only general surgeon in town. So he was doing... He was delivering babies, he was doing appendectomies, he was fixing your hemorrhoid in his office. You know, he was, he was the guy, and he was embraced by the town, and, and he in turn embraced the town and found that that's where he really wanted to be. 
Now, you know, flash forward many years to 1969, he had a, um, a colleague who was a social worker who they worked on cleft palate cases. The social worker would go out and find kids who needed repair for, to their, for their cleft palate, and they, she would bring them to the attention of Stanley Biber, and he would do the surgery. And at the end of one of their conferences one day, uh, this, uh, this woman said, you know, I have a personal favor to ask. Would you consider doing my surgery? And Stanley Biber, who was this very, very confident, perhaps overconfident, uh, you know, former MASH surgeon, you know, he'd done everything. Um, he said, sure, what do you got? What, what do you need? And she said, well, I'm, I'm transsexual. And his response was, well, what's that? And um, at that point, you know, she explained that she he wanted to go from, she had, you know, male genitalia and she wanted to transition, she was in the middle of transitioning to female and wanted him to do the surgery. And again, he never lacked the confidence, so he did a little research, um, got back to her that day and said, you know, if you want, want to do this, I, I think I could do this. And that's how it all began for him. That's such an interesting start. You would think that would have happened in other places, too. But were people just not thinking of it that much at that time yet? or? Um, but you would think there are other small towns with a good, good and good-hearted surgeon. Yeah, and, 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 and yet it takes some training in techniques. Uh, there was a, a, a French doctor named Georges Beroux who practiced in uh, Morocco, <clears throat> excuse me, who had, had perfected some of the techniques for um, a fairly rudimentary version of uh, the surgery, of, of sort of a, a male to female surgery, sort of a reconstruction of a penis and scrotum into a vagina. And he had he had some, uh, I found some, some drawings that he had done of basically explaining step by step how you do that surgery. And uh, Stanley Biber got his, got his hands on those drawings, or some drawings very much like them. And, you know, sort of looked them over and said, you know, this seems simple enough. I, I think I can do that. Now, there may have been other, you know, surgeons who, um, who were capable of doing that, but he had the opportunity because somebody mm -hmm. had come to him and once he did one and the word got around that he did it fairly well, um, people kept coming to him. And one of the attractions was that he offered no judgment. Now, he was not judging anyone. And, and keep in mind, this is a Jewish surgeon operating at a Catholic hospital at the time run by the Sisters of Charity. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, it was a pretty remarkable circumstance. Um, and in the beginning, Stanley Biber was being pretty cagey about it. He was keeping his files of these patients um, in a special safe in the administrator's office. Um, and he was, in, in fact, telling uh, early you know, questioners that, yes, these were accident victims, and he was just simply doing some reparative work. Um, word was getting around, though, because transgender men and women from all over the world were starting to come to Trinidad. And... Word was getting around, and he decided to take the bull by the horns and say, okay, you know, I called, he called together the, the, the local clergy, the hospital administrators, concerned townspeople, um, into a meeting. And he said, look, this is what I'm doing, and this is why I'm doing it. These people need help. I have the ability to relieve their pain. Uh, it's no more complicated than that. And because he was Stanley Biber, because he was the most trusted doctor in town, 
Um, everybody liked him. Everybody knew him. Um, they said, okay. You know, as long as family says it's okay, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of, that goodwill lasted for 35 years as he you know, continued to develop that specialty. In your book, you say that one of the nuns at the hospital was really his champion. You know, she was a, you would call that person a patient advocate today. Um, and she, you know, she was a sort of, I went to Catholic school. I know what a very stern, older-looking nun looks like, and that's, <laughs> that's who this woman was. And she, um, she was the patient advocate, essentially, at the time, without that title, whose job it was uh, to... Uh, to make sure that the patients were treated with dignity and with respect and and that they were getting the, the optimum medical care that they, they could get. And, um, you know, I've talked to many of the patients who passed through Trinidad during those years, and they said, this woman was amazing. You know, if, if there was any, she, she wanted to know if any of the staff treated you with disrespect. If, if they did, she, she was going to let them know about it. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, this whole story for me as a journalist was like peeling an onion because every time you took off another layer, there was a more interesting layer underneath. Mm-hmm. And, and that interchange, and, you know, this is a, a heavily Hispanic Catholic mining town. Um, very, very much. And the Sisters of Charity not only opened the hospital, they started the first school district in Colorado in Trinidad. Um, so they were integral to the community. And there's a story that used to go around that at some point, you know, some of the Sisters of Charity who worked at the hospital wrote to the Vatican and asked if, you know, if what they were doing was okay. And, you know, by, by the myth, uh, according to the legend, they got a letter back that said, it's fine, just keep doing your ministry. Now, I've never been able to prove that. No one has mm-hmm. been able to prove that that actually happened. And in fact, there are a couple of researchers who looked very deeply into that story and concluded that there's, if it happened, there's no proof that it happened. Um, but I want to believe it happened. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, it, something in me wants to believe that, that, that the Vatican realized that they were doing good work and important work, and they let them continue doing that work. Um, anyway, that's my, that's my take on it, but mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's got any basis in reality or not. So, so Martin, you're, um, you're not yourself trans. I am not. Okay, just want to make fact, just make it clear for our listeners. You're a historian. Yeah. You you write you write book. I mean, it's rare that we. It's really honestly rare that we look, we talk about a book on air that has an index. <laughs> 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 to I'm be to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm a journalist by trade, and and I'm the guy that honestly, when I started working on this project, I had to go look up the word cisgender. Uh, because people were referring to me as, you know, you're a cisgender writer. How are you going to write a, a transgender book? And I had to go look up the word. I, that's how unschooled I was in gender issues um, three years ago uh, when I started writing this story. And it's but, been a long learning curve and, and a humbling one. But tell the story of uh, why you got interested in this particular topic. How you got there from your your cousin. Yeah, and the, the long version is, is, you know, writers are, are kind of odd creatures. Um, and Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> as you know. Uh-huh. Um, and they, 
they tend to squirrel things away in their head until such time when they are ready to unpack those things and, and find them you know, useful for something they're writing. And about 1991 or 1992, I was at a family reunion in, in uh, Estes Park, Colorado, and we were all staying in a big family reunion lodge. There were about 80 of, of us staying under one roof, having breakfast together every morning. And um, that was the reunion that my cousin Sarah decided she was going to announce to the family that uh, she was transitioning. Um, and um, she did so in a sort of wonderfully remarkable way. Um, the first morning at breakfast, she came down with one simple post earring in one ear. The second morning, she came to breakfast with a, a post earring, you know, a very simple, deep post earring in both ears. You know, it was slightly more feminine. Uh, the third day, she ratcheted it up one another. By the fourth day, the final day of the reunion, she was wearing very, very feminine earrings. And, and you could not not notice. Um, and that was her point. And, and I watched people react to that. I watched her perform that sort of announcement. And I watched people in the family react to it, both negatively and positively. And I thought, you know, that was interesting. And I don't understand what happened here just now. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I kind of put that away. I thought, okay, that was, that was interesting. Um, so, uh, uh, 10 years pass, and I'm at another reunion. We're at another reunion, uh, this time in Virginia. And I was, she was living full time as a, as a female by then. And I, you know, was having a conversation and I said, you know, ask the dumb question, you know, did you, did you have the surgery? Are you going to have the surgery? And she said, no, I, I don't think I'm going to have the surgery. I, I like having a penis. At which point, my head just sort of exploded. I didn't understand anything about this. Um, and, and, you know, but what I noticed, you know, after 10 years of living as a woman, my cousin Sarah, who in her prior life had been very socially awkward and, and difficult to relate to, um, almost, you know, sort of, of autism, on the autism Asperger's spectrum. Um, after living as a woman, she carried on conversations, she told jokes, she wanted to talk politics, she looked you in the eye. It was a remarkable, remarkable transformation. And that again stuck in my head. And so I, I put that away and, and, you know, in my, my lockbox of unanswered questions in my head. And then in 2016, after I moved to Colorado and started hearing stories about Trinidad, I thought, okay, here's an opportunity to tell a story that's not abstract. It's a, it's a real place with real people, doctors and patients, 6,000 medical pilgrims who came to this place over 41 years. Um, if I can tell that story, I can start to unpack all those questions that I had um, based on my experience with my cousin Sarah and and start to tell that story in a way that might be accessible to people like me who don't quite know what to do with those questions who are mystified by the transgender experience and you know it that it trained the trinidad story going to trinidad became exactly that a, a, i think a very accessible way to explore issues of gender and genitalia and sexuality um in a way that's very, very accessible to, to most people. 
One of the things that you're trying to do in the book, and we only have a minute before we need to take a break, but um, you're trying to get away from the binary idea that most people have, that you're either male or female. Exactly. That, you know, that revelation of, of sort of viewing gender on a spectrum rather than, you know, that sort of binary view that, that I grew up with um, was the revelation for me. Is sort of understanding, you know, intersex individuals. And, um, it, you know, it was just a, a remarkable revelation. And I wanted the book and the story to, to, to sort of force people to think differently about gender. Why don't we take our break? Uh, we're talking to Martin J. Smith. His new book is called Going to Trinidad. Uh, we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink. And our guest is Martin J. Smith. His book is called Going to Trinidad. Going to Trinidad is a euphemism or used to be a euphemism for going to have transition uh, surgery. Um, Patty. So, um, so Martin, uh, tell us about uh, Dr. Marcy Bowers. She's quite the player in Trinidad, had been, um, and, um, and has quite a history of serving people in Trinidad. Um, can you tell us about her? He was, uh, you know, over the years, as Stanley Biber carried on his practice, I mean, he was doing three to four surgeries a week on his own when he was in his prime. He was getting older. Uh, you know, he was in his 70s, and he started thinking about his legacy and his practice there in Trinidad and all the people who had come to rely on him over the years um, as a reliable uh, resource for, for surgery. So he started sort of auditioning replacements. You know, he started talking to a lot of other surgeons about the possibility of them coming to Trinidad and taking over his practice. Um, and you know, he auditioned a lot of folks. You know, some people came to visit him, some he just had conversations with. But there was a woman in um, Seattle, Marsha Botzer, who ran the Ingersoll Gender Center, and she founded it in Seattle. And it was a kind of a landmark. Uh, gender center in Seattle, and at one point, you know, she said to uh, Marcy Bowers, who was an OBGYN in, uh, a tra and transgender herself, she said to Marcy Bowers in Seattle at one point, she said, I think you need to meet the family Biber, and she arranged for them uh, to, to be introduced, and in fact, I think she went to Trinidad with Marcy Bowers and introduced her to, to Stanley Biber, um, and that began a relationship, sort of a courtship, um, that ended up leading to Marcy Bowers deciding to relocate. Her family, her children were um, based in Seattle. But she relocated to Trinidad and decided to, you know, sort of apprentice with Stanley Biber, learn his techniques, and take over, ultimately take over his practice. And that was in 2003 is when she arrived. Stanley Biber passed away in 2006. Wow. And from that point forward, she carried on his practice for the next seven years until 2010. Um, there were differences between the two that ultimately proved <coughs> crucial. Um, Stanley Biber, you know, was, like I said, he was sort of a cowboy. Uh, he drove a, a Toyota pickup truck that his financial advisor once described as, you know, the one like a Toyota, like the terrorist drive in the Middle East, you know, <laughs> like beat up, 
And he had absolutely no pretensions, right? He, you know, he, he spent money on nothing but land and cattle. Um, he was out repairing fences before he'd go in for surgery in the morning. Um, and everybody in town knew and loved him. Marcy came in from the outside. She was from Seattle, uh, a very accomplished surgeon, very accomplished OBGYN. But she was a stranger, in, in a sense. <clears throat> and even though Stanley Biber, you know, introduced her around town as, you know, this is my protege, this is, you know, extend her all the courtesies and respect that you would extend to me, um, her personality was very different. She was a little flashier. I mean, she was transgender herself. Um, and, um, and she was a little bit flashier for a period toward the end of her career there. She was driving a Porsche Boxster, which contrasts, you know, rather dramatically with Stanley Biber's terrorist pickup truck. Um, <laughs> and, um, and she, you know, she played golf a lot. She was, um, you know, she was very well liked and very well respected around town, but it was a different kind of, kind of relationship that kind of dad had with her. And she was also a little bit more savvy about the media. Uh, Stanley Barber wasn't shy. He, I mean, Geraldo Rivera once filmed the surgery that he did, um, um, you know, years ago. And, you know, he, he accepted publicity and attention when it came his way, but he wasn't aggressive about seeking it out. Marcy was a little different. You know, her attitude was, you know, here's an opportunity to educate the general public about what we're doing here and, and you know, transgender issues in general. And she, you know, she was a little more aggressive about courting publicity. In fact, there was a very short-lived Bravo television series called Sex Change Hospital that she was the star of. Um, and, you know, that started to create some tension with the hospital uh, because we had camera crews coming in and, you know, there are HIPAA regulations, privacy regulations in hospitals that they had to, you know, work around. And it was creating, I mean, this is a very small hospital, a 25-bed hospital. Uh, it is it small. Creating, yeah, and it was creating tension with the hospital administration because we can't have these camera crews just wandering through the hospital. And, you know, there were various other components to it. But ultimately, the differences in personality between the two ultimately led Marcy to decide to relocate her practice to Burlingame, California, which is just south of San Francisco, where she's thriving today. In fact, she is the new president of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Oh, she, wow. You know, her, her, her career has, has risen, you know, and she also, I should add, has, has taken the, the sort of fairly rudimentary technique that she learned from Stanley Fiber. And and improved them a great a great deal in terms of sensitivity and responsiveness of those organs and that, you know in terms of reconstructive surgery. So she's taken it you know beyond what Stanley did um, and and sort of created her own space uh, at the top of that pyramid. Um, going back in history a little bit. I was born at this time, but, you know, it's still history. Um, about 1952 is when Christine Jorgensen had her surgery. Was it 52? Okay. Um, so they had been working on male-to-female surgery for a while. When did female-to-male surgery first begin happening? You know, I don't, I don't have a 
clear answer to that, although I don't think it was too long after the the female or the male to female. I mean, they started experimenting. Baru, George Baru, the, the one who operated in Morocco and pioneered many of these techniques, also pioneered some some um, uh, female to male techniques as well. Um, it you know, in terms of the number of people who undergo the surgery, trans men and women who undergo the surgery, it's about two thirds are female. Uh, I'm sorry, male to female, and about a third are female to male. Um, the reason is that it's a much more complicated process to go female to male. It's, a, it's an act of building rather than subtracting, um, and that's more complicated. And in fact, it takes more than one surgery. There are a number of surgeries that have to take place for that transition to happen. Um, I don't think it was too long after uh, the, the, you know, the original um, you know, male-to-female subtraction surgeries that, that they began experimenting with, with procedures to, to add. Um, but it seems as though over the last maybe 10, maybe 20 years, just the number of trans men that I know now all of a sudden has just exploded. Um, have there been advances in female-to-male surgery over the last two decades? Yes, there have. And I, you know, I think, you know, what you're seeing is, is possibly, you know, two-pronged. One is um, uh, that, that the surgeries have improved, the techniques have improved. And the other is that um, uh, people are talking a lot more about it. Um, you know, as Marcy Bauer said at one point, she said, you know, most of my uh, female to male patients, they just want to be able to stand up to pee. Um, and that's, you know, that's the primary, they, you know, they want to be able to, uh, uh, to be able to do that. And, you know, if there's, uh, if they can improve the hydraulics of, of sexuality, of, of male sexuality after those surgeries, those techniques have been improving significantly over the last couple of decades. So I, I do think if, if, if those two things that are happening simultaneously mm-hmm. when the surgery is getting better and two people are talking more about it. And probably a third one uh, that it's just become more available. Exactly. More doctors yeah. trained in, in what to do. Um, I think I think an important aspect of that too is, um, for example, I was pretty involved with the city of Dallas in getting WPATH-driven healthcare benefits for all 13,500 city of Dallas employees and their dependents. Wow. Of, if they um, if they want it, and if they're seeking it, they, they need it. It's really a need, um, and I think more more um, entities, corporations, mm-hmm. municipalities, uh, employers are covering it in their policies, and, and that's part of just general availability. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, yeah, but there, you know, the, the, I was just going to say the barrier to to having surgery for so many years was just the price. Mm-hmm. Um, because insurance didn't cover it, um, you know, it was, you know, that was definitely a factor in in whether people decided to have the surgery or not, um, if they could afford it or not. And and I know that Glad is, is very outspoken in terms of, you know, please don't view surgery as the be all end all here because some people simply can't afford it, others don't want it. Um, a transition is fully complete 
with or without the surgery. Exactly. Um, and and some people yeah. can't have it just for other medical reasons. Correct. So, um, in your book, it's Going to Trinidad uh, by Martin J. Smith, is who we're talking to. Uh, in your book, one of the ways that you tell the stories is by telling the stories of people who actually went to Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And you have a couple of people who you especially talk about, uh, Claudine Griggs and Walt Heyer. Tell us who they are. Claudine Griggs, I needed, you know, there were approximately 6,000 medical pilgrims who passed through Trinidad during those 41 years. Um, many of them, is one, of, one of the early things I discovered in my research was that many of them don't want to talk about their lives before transition. Um, I don't think that's uncommon among uh, trans men and women. Um, and that became a barrier very early on in my reporting, is getting people to tell me their stories, the full arc of their stories, before, during, and after Trinidad. Um, and so those 6,000 possibilities very quickly narrowed down to the few who were willing to talk about the full arc of their experience. Um, there happened to be two people who had written journals and met, kept memoirs and published memoirs about their experience in Trinidad, and Claudine Griggs was one of them. Um, she is a remarkable woman, remarkably articulate. She wrote a book called Passage Through Trinidad, Journey of a Sex Change, um, uh, which I had read and found to be a remarkable journal of the experience physical, emotional, psychological, everything. Um, And she was still alive and was willing to talk to me about her experience and elaborate on the things that she had written about. And I wanted her to represent the 97% of people who go through the surgery who are happy and and satisfied that they have done that process. The vast, vast majority of trans men and women who undergo this very difficult, very painful process are glad they did it. It's life-changing and life-saving. Absolutely, life-saving. When you look at the suicide figures for trans men and women, it's startling. 41% have had suicide ideation compared to 4% of the general population. So you're exactly right. It's life-saving for so many people. And I wanted Claudine to represent that story, that vast majority of people who are glad that they did the surgery. Yeah, in your um, book, one of the things you say about her is that she was kind of surprised when she was asked by Dr. Biber, so when uh, did you try to commit suicide and how many times? Not did yeah. you try, but there was. Right. he just had this assumption that, that she would have. How many times did you? Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so she became the embodiment of the vast majority of trans men and women who undergo surgery. There was, however, another individual that I had, had left behind this chronicle of what had happened in, in Trinidad. His name was Walt Heyer. Um, now, you know, he, many people, many of your listeners, I suspect, will recognize his name. He has become, in recent years, a, a bit of a lightning rod to the LGBT community because he's very outspoken. He's a very conservative, um, politically conservative man who um, who also tries to talk people out of having surgery. He has uh, a website called sexchangeregret.com. He's very, very um, 
controversial. Um, but I didn't focus on who he is now. What I focused on in the book is the 40-year struggle he had with mental illness. It turns out that he was never gender dysphoric. He was misdiagnosed by a therapist in San Francisco named Paul Walker. He was diagnosed very quickly as gender dysphoric and had the surgery with Dr. Biber before they really figured out what his issues were. His issue was that he had dissociative disorder. Oh my, uh, wow. Uh, and one of his, his very strong personas in his head was a woman who wanted to get the surgery and that's what he followed. Um, but very few people who know him by name and reputation today know the story of how he became who he became. And that's the story I try to tell in going to Trinidad. Mm -hmm. uh, he is, I tell his story in parallel with Claudine Griggs. Uh, as an example of that very small minority of people for whom it's not the right solution. Surgery is not the right solution. Um, his story is particularly dramatic. And I, you know, I chose it as a storyteller and I wasn't trying to make any point in particular by including him, except the fact that his story is really compelling. And, um, and he's the guy in the book who says things out loud that a lot of people think, which allowed me as a writer to then address those issues that he raises, you know, through people like Marcy Bowers, through people like historian, transgender historian, Susan Stryker. They could take the arguments that he's making and explain to them why that's not good science or why that's, that's not an accurate depiction of the transgender experience. It allowed for a fuller discussion um, of, of all the issues involved, and that's why he's in the book. Mm -hmm. Well, there certainly aren't a lot of myths about the process and the experience, and um, I think that's, that's a wonderful way to try to address all of those because this is, as you said, an education um, to a lot of people who have those questions and don't have answers. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a really wonderful way to do that. How long ago was his surgery? Uh, higher surgery was in 1982, I believe, 81 or 82. Um, Claudine Griggs was in 91, uh, and well, she was about 10 years after his. And the reason I ask about Walt Heyer was that's much earlier in the history of transgender uh, gender confirmation surgery. Mm -hmm. Do people who are working with a transgender person know more about how to find people who have true gender dysphoria and people who are suffering from something else? Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that science marches on and we have learned a lot in the last 40 years. I mean, the science of this really goes back into the 1940s. There was a uh, researcher named Hirschfeld in Germany. Uh, Adolf Hitler actually called him the most dangerous Jew in, in Germany because he ran a, um, a gender research, a gender and sexuality research organization and had this vast trove of scientific knowledge accumulated. Um, and, you know, so the science has been settled, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades. But it has, you know, the, the ability to, as you said, to diagnose, to properly diagnose and treat um, people with gender dysphoria 
has advanced enormously in the last 20 years, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, I th- um, and I think it's true to uh, you know, what was called the Harry Benjamin standards are now the WPATH standards. Um, exactly. And the process that WPATH follows um, and adheres to, I think, today might identify um, a Walt Heyer situation in the normal course of its process. Exactly. And, I, I, you know, with Claudine Griggs, for example, I mean, she had been living as a woman for 16 years before she ever sought out surgery. Um, you know, the, the, the WPATH standard is, you know, you have to live in that, you know, the, 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 your, your gender for a year before they will even consider it. And you have mm-hmm. to go through psychological evaluations and, and so forth. Those, those considerations are still very controversial. Even Marcy Bowers says, you know, a lot of people resent the idea that, you know, I have to have a psychological evaluation. I know who I am. Mm-hmm. Don't convince me that, that I need to have a psychological evaluation. Even Marcy Bowers says it's still a good idea. You know, there are there are you know landmines in that in that process that you don't want to step on, and you want to you know be careful of that. You want this to be a very carefully considered decision because in many cases the surgeries are irreversible, um, and and you want to make sure that everybody's on the same page moving forward. There, you know, there's a story that Biber told, or I actually talked to Stanley Biber's anesthesiologist um, for many years, the guy named Bucky Carr, who told the story of, you know, there was a, you know, they would, they would have the transgender patients who were there for the week, often room together. Um, and one night, this, this anesthesiologist was talking to one of the patients, and, and there was a roommate who was also getting the surgery the next day, uh, in the next bed, and the, the the one patient leaned over to the anesthesiologist and says, "My roommate isn't trans," and you know, and so he took that to Stanley Biber and said, "You know, we think we need to have another conversation with this other patient. You know, this other this roommate is is concerned that, that there's been a misdiagnosis here." And Stanley Biber went in the next morning and had a conversation with that and came away with the same conclusion. This person isn't trans um you know there's something else going on here and he said let's postpone this let's think about this Mm -hmm. but i think he was very conscientious throughout his career uh, to make sure that that you know this was the right solution um for for the individual patient um and those have been codified you know that that caution has been codified in the wpath standards martin we need to take a quick break uh, you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink, and we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. Our guest today is author Martin J. Smith. His new book is called Going to Trinidad. Going to Trinidad is a euphemism for going to have uh, sex gender, to have gender confirmation surgery. Uh, our guest is, uh, I, I just said that, uh, I'm running the board today and I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> You're having to do two things at once and uh, I understand it's, that. It's three things at once, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, um, that, was a, that was a remarkable story you just shared before the break, Martin. Um, is, is that in the book? Yes, that's, that's, that's interesting. I haven't, I haven't finished reading it. Um, um, 
there are other characters that you talk about in the book. Um, what are some of the things that you learned in general about uh, transgender people from some of the people who made the trip to Trinidad? You know, like I said, I, I started off, you know, in a very sort of humbling position of not knowing anything. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm, as a journalist, I'm comfortable in that position because the process of reporting is, is learning and, and trying to understand. And, you know, you're, you're following your curiosity, you know, with a, you know, with a, a sort of an empathetic lead and, and you're trying to understand people's stories. And, you know, I think, as I said, the, the thing that I walked away from this understanding much better than I ever did was, you know, how gender, you know, arranges itself along a spectrum. And, and every one of those stories, every point along that spectrum is a human story. Um, I tell, I tell the story of, uh, you know, of Kester Semenya, who is a, um, a South African sprinter, you know, an elite South African sprinter, two-time Olympic gold medalist mm -hmm. at the 800 meters, um, who is an intersex individual. Um, she is genetically an XY chromosome, which means genetically she is male, but she's lived all her life as a female. Um, I, I, don't have any independent confirmation of this, but presumably she has female genitalia. But she also has gonads inside her body that produce testosterone. Now, um, you know, you know, again, in terms of, you know, on the intersex spectrum, you know, she's a little bit of both. Um, competes as a female, um, and yet the International Olympic Committee has decided that there's an arbitrary level of testosterone that you're allowed to have in your body to compete as a female. Her, her body naturally produces testosterone above that level. Well, where does that leave her? You know, it's a, it's a remarkable dilemma um, and demeaning. You know, she's got to be, you know, her gender is the topic of every race she runs. And, you know, it's, but she's, she's not taking any supplements. She's not had any, you know, she's not taking hormones. She, that's her body. Um, and understanding that, that there's a place for everybody along that spectrum. Uh, there should be a place. Uh, but in reality, the people who really understand that are the people who make their living looking at our underparts, right? Mm -hmm. you know, OBGYNs, neurologists, and proctologists. Um, you know, they're the people who understand that there's this, you know, there's this wide number of people. They say that the number of intersex people in the human population is about the same as the number of redheads in the human population. Um, that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And and if we ignore those people, if we marginalize those people, if we somehow diminish those people um, and, and sideline them, we're doing a disservice to a, a vast swath of humanity. Mm -hmm. and, and what's, and, what's and really and crazy, learning, too... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. And, and learning that, for me, was was eye-open, and, and part of the reason I wanted to write the book was to tell these stories in such detail, such specific detail, and in such human terms, that it would be impossible for anybody who reads those stories to sort of say, oh, these are just men in dresses that were trying to get into locker rooms, mm -hmm. right? You know, that absurd argument. You can't make that argument once you understand 
how complicated all this is. What's going on in legislatures around the country right now with all of these anti-transgender bills is people are coming, they're testifying against transgender uh, kids competing in sports. and But only in women's sports. In women's sports. Um, and one after another, they're asking the, this expert testimony, you know, this expert who's come to give testimony and, and saying, well, do you have an example in our state of where a transgender girl has won? And the answer is no, in state after state, because they're just kids. They're, yeah. That's my response. Name one transgender athlete who dominates their sport. Because that's the fear they're trading in, right? Mm-hmm. That that you know that a, a, a you know a, a male is going to compete as a female um, and dominate the sport. Name one. There isn't. So you know, it, it, it's with any kind of fear mongering, you invent a problem and then you stir the fear around it, even though it has no basis in reality. And it's particularly true in Texas. We went through several legislative sessions about the bathroom bill, the so-called bathroom bills, and the real focus was protecting, quote, women and children. There's never any discussion about um, a trans man walking into a men's room. That was never even brought up. And it's the same thing with the sports approach that they're taking now to try to humiliate and second-class, maybe even third-class trans people. They're, they're, it's an asserted effort to do that across the board, and this is just another way, but it's, it's so obvious. You know, we, I think we can, we can all agree there's nothing sexier than a public restroom. <laughs> <laughs> we just have one minute left. One of the things you talk about is the transgender tipping point. Um, it, it seems more and more there are trans people in, well, we have an undersecretary uh, in uh, Health, Health and Human Services now who's transgender, yep. who, who was chosen because she is she was the best uh, of the health secretaries around the country, state health secretaries, mm-hmm. uh, having one of the most successful programs in helping to control the coronavirus. But just talk a little bit about that transgender tipping point. You know, you hope that it's, Time Magazine put the transgender tripping point on its cover in 2014. I don't think we were there yet. I mean, 2016 hadn't even happened at that point, and that was a full all-out assault on trans rights and, and health care and, and so forth. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I think we're getting much closer to it, where um, these conversations can happen. That was part of the point of writing going to Trinidad, was... Kickstarting that conversation and making sure that we're having a smart conversation based on science and reality, not on presumptions and fear. Mm-hmm. And I think for the general public who doesn't understand, every time they see Laverne Cox on something, I mean, she's such a good actress. She really is a good mm-hmm. actress, um, which surprised me the first time I saw her, I guess because... I wasn't expecting anything one way or the other, but uh, I really enjoy her work. Um, but seeing people that you've known or can relate to in some way uh, helps change people's opinions. Yeah, and representation in the media, um, in public life, is so important. I know Sports Illustrated last year made news when they included a, a trans model in their swimsuit issue, 
This year, they've been out. I believe that there is a trans model on the cover of that issue. Mm. Um, Fantastic. That 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 kind of representation wouldn't have happened when Time Magazine declared it in 2014 as a tipping point, but it's starting to happen now. And I think that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, a number of years ago, Dallas Voice did a, um, uh, Dallas Voice is the gay paper here that I work for. We did a swimsuit mm-hmm. issue. And one of the criticisms we had was, oh, yeah, sure, you didn't have a trans person in there. And we did. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's when it becomes invisible like that. Uh-huh. Progress. That, exactly. that is progress. Um, we need to go. The next show isn't here yet, but we do need to get the studio ready for them to come in. Um, Martin Smith uh, go, going to Trinidad, a doctor, a Colorado town, and stories from an unlikely gender crossroads. Uh, the book isn't out yet, is it? It comes out April 15th in both audio and print, hardcover print. Um, but it's available for pre-order now through any online retailer or local bookstore. Great. Thank you Fantastic. so much for doing this. Really wonderful, really wonderful work. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. And for all of us here at Lambda Weekly, uh, have a happy Passover, happy Easter. We'll see you next week. Bye.